Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Kevin. I just want to give you guys some updates on some of the exciting things coming to Behind the Knife in the coming months. Uh, one of the things we're working hard on right now is we're making an oral board review series. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to cover the 50 most likely scenarios you could encounter on the oral boards. And we're just going to run through them. And it's going to be uh, you know, what we think uh, a safe and correct answer would be on the oral boards um, for the 50 most likely scenarios. So look forward to that coming in, in the fall. Um, it's, it's a lot of work, um, kind of working on, on a nightly basis. Uh, another exciting thing we have going on, we uh, have recently just partnered with uh, one of the premier surgical journals to bring you a monthly uh, journal club with direct access uh, to the authors, and uh, you'll get some great insight, and this will be a continuing feature throughout the 2018-2019 academic year, so look forward to that. Um, we also are, are partnering with some friends, and you'll hear more about this in the coming weeks, but we're going to release a 10 to 15 episode series for medical students, and it's going to be directed at them and what they need to know for their clerkship and for their shelf. So it's going to be a little bit uh, of the basics, but it should be good, some good stuff. And we also have our YouTube channel. You can find us on Behind the Knife if you search on YouTube. We've been releasing uh, surgical skills videos, and it's just one place you can go to and learn the very basics, suturing, instruments in the OR. I bet a lot of you guys out there don't know all the instruments in a laparotomy tray. We go through all of them there. We're going to have some quizzes on there um, to see if you really do know your surgical instruments. Um, and we're going to go through um, some more surgical procedures. If you guys have videos you want to submit to us and um, help us out with, making it an even better channel, uh, you know, feel free to hit us up at btkpodcast at gmail.com and we'd love to collaborate with you on that. And then, so the final thing is we, we've got a lot of things coming down the pipeline, and uh, many listeners throughout the years have asked us, how can we be part of Behind the Knife? I, I want to help. I, I love what you guys do. Um, and, and now that we're going in so many directions, we, we decided it would be a good time to allow someone to join the Behind the Knife team. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to have a one-year position. It's going to be a Behind the Knife uh, adjunct uh, host team member. Um, and we're hoping to find a motivated research resident that loves medical education and wants to learn more about the podcast medium. Uh, we estimate it would be about four to six hours of week, and it obviously vary week to week, but um, shouldn't be more than that. Um, and the cool thing is we'd buy you a lot of autonomy to decide on guests, special features, and what meetings you'd like to cover as part of the Behind the Knife team. So if you're interested in this, uh, email us at btkpodcasts at gmail.com, and I will get you the form to fill out, uh, and we're going to have these forms open until May 1st, and then we'll kind of narrow it down and do some Skype interviews. And we're looking forward uh, to seeing who applies. And you can also go to our Twitter account, and, and the form is on there also from one of our most recent tweets. Well, anyways, lots of exciting things behind the knife. Uh, a little bariatrics for you today. And uh, keep listening and spreading the word. Thanks for listening, guys. So welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are very pleased to have Dr. Samer Motar, who is the medical director of the Swedish Weight Loss Services in Seattle, Washington, also the president of the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. Dr. Motar, thanks so much for joining us on BTK. 
Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. So as all of our listeners know through the years, we always like to start out just tell us a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? Where did you train? How did it come to the point where you found yourself in Seattle? Sure. So um, my parents, uh, my father was a diplomat. So I grew up in many countries, mostly in uh, Europe and Latin America. And um, he's, uh, we're Egyptian. And so we returned to Egypt, and this is where I completed my high school and then entered medical school in Cairo, Egypt. And once I graduated, I sought additional uh, training in Scotland, where I got my FRCS. I became a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. And from there, I wanted to come to the United States to do some research. I ended up at Embry University in Atlanta, and uh, I actually... uh, well, attended a lot of the meetings that residents would attend and uh, just uh, became very interested in uh, seeking further training here in the United States. So I did my equivalence examinations and then entered residency, completed that, and then did a fellowship in MIS and bariatrics. And from then on, I uh, pretty much dedicated my life to bariatrics. I fell in love with the field. It's, uh, it's a very rewarding area. And uh, I've, uh, I've stayed in academia for uh, ever since my fellowship and just uh, recently uh, moved to Swedish here in Seattle. And this is my first job in, uh, in a community health system. Well, Dr. Matar, I was fortunate enough to uh, sit, down with, uh, sit down and hear your grand rounds at Swedish uh, about a month or two ago. Uh, and you discuss the uh, bariatric myths and facts, uh, especially the, the myths that go wrong along with bariatric surgery that are not even questions for uh, patients, but also for current providers. Um, and bariatric surgery becoming more common uh, and throughout the United States. Uh, I think these things are important to address. Um, so moving to our section of the day, I, I'd like to go through a lot of these myths that you first talked about. And the first one that came up is bariatric surgeon is common. And I think I think that is a a very interesting topic because it can you maybe describe the obesity epidemic in the United States right now and the current trends in bariatric surgery? Right. The the reason I mentioned this as a myth is that uh, everywhere you go, you hear about bariatric surgery and, and you, the, the perception is that it is a very common procedure and that might be the case in particular pockets of the country. But in reality, it is a, a the bariatric surgery that is being practiced is a very uh, is infinitely is very small compared to the to the eligible population. Meaning that we are with all the uh, operations that we do, which is about more than two hundred thousand a year, uh, they're only addressing one percent, one to two percent of the eligible population. As you know, obesity uh, is, an, uh, is, is of epidemic proportions in the country. It's affecting 36, maybe 37% of the population. Morbid obesity, meaning BMI above uh, 35, is affecting almost 8% of the population. Sorry, uh, yeah, 8% of the population. And so you can see how um, um, there's a big gap between uh, what we do and uh, the number of patients that could be helped with this uh, life-saving uh, operation. 
So you mentioned that only one percent of, of patients that are are eligible um, actually receive you know the procedure. Can you go over just briefly you know in the United States what the current criteria uh, for eligibility are, and then maybe talk about why you think uh, since there are it is such an epidemic why you think that so few people are actually getting the operation. Right. So. Um, and we are still going by criteria that were laid by the NIH back in 1991. And, um, and these criteria include, of course, uh, uh, they're based on the BMI, the body mass index of a person. And the body mass index of a person at above 40 uh, renders this person eligible. Or 35 and above, provided they have one or two life-threatening conditions, such as hypertension, sleep apnea, diabetes, and so on. They also, patients uh, have to have had prior attempts at weight loss, meaning diets or lifestyle changes. And finally, they don't, they should not have absolute contraindications to surgery, meaning um, uh, alcoholism or drug abuse uh, that is in current status. Additionally, patients should understand the procedures that they're going to have and understand the benefits and risks, which is why we emphasize education uh, in such a large amount in the preparation of the patient. Now, um, these criteria are somewhat uh, arbitrary, meaning the BMI criteria, because as we've gained experience, we've noticed that um, patients start developing uh, uh, components of the metabolic syndrome even before their BMIs reach 35. And we've learned also that the earlier you operate on these patients, uh, the better the risk status and therefore the better the outcomes. The second part of your question was about how beneficial, why are not more patients breaking down the walls to get this operation? And we've studied this in, in, in several ways. Uh, but most importantly, uh, we actually commissioned a survey just last year. It was on a, a national survey that was conducted by the uh, University of Chicago. And it, uh, it, it asked uh, random people what their perceptions were about obesity. And what we learned is that the U.S. population does recognize that obesity is a health hazard. And they do realize that obesity is linked to early death and to multiple complications and comorbidities. But the majority of people still think that they can, uh, they can correct their um, uh, obesity by themselves without necessarily any help. They also have a fear of surgery. Um, they, they, they're afraid that they might have a complication or an, uh, a negative outcome. So fear and uh, unawareness uh, of the benefits of surgery are the two main factors. Uh, there's also, we, we, um, we learned that they have a fear of the side effects of medications that can help uh, with weight loss. So it's not just surgery. But the, uh, the main message was that uh, the uh, layperson still strongly believes that they can effectively, uh, dramatically, and uh, permanently uh, uh, improve their health status through just uh, willful weight loss. 
Well, that's, that's great. There's a there's a lot to actually I have a lot of questions. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, um, certainly, I want to. We're going to try and address some of those those fears that you speak of and some of those some of those myths throughout this talk. Um, I, I wanted to know a couple different things. First, like you mentioned, 35 with you know one of these life threatening hypertension hyperlipidemia. I think that we'll often see patients referred for bariatric surgery that maybe don't have that classic metabolic syndrome, but maybe they have their BMI is 37 and they have joint pain or they have migraines or they have reflux. What are you doing with those patients? So in those patients, uh, we, uh, we actually uh, discover a lot of comorbidities in the, uh, in the ordinary workup of patients, many patients, and that's the problem with a lot of these comorbidities is that they're silent diseases. Many patients aren't aware that they have hypertension or diabetes or even sleep apnea, and we discover these in the course of working up the patients. But you're right. Uh, some uh, uh, some payers and, uh, um, will, will not allow patients to advance to surgery unless they have specific uh, uh, comorbidities that have to be diagnosed and proven. And in those cases, we will sometimes communicate with the medical directors of payers and try and explain uh, and hopefully get more enlightened uh, counterparts to talk to about how um, bariatric surgery is not only uh, curative, but also preventive, meaning that we try to uh, inform uh, uh, these uh, individuals that if they don't have diabetes now or hypertension, that might come down the line if nothing is done and we waited five or 10 years. So we try to work with the patients. But kind of along those same lines, you're kind of right on the cusp of having, like, how core morbid does something have to be in order to kind of meet exactly what Jason was talking about? I mean, it's it goes beyond pairs as a surgeon, as a healthcare provider. Where do you cross that line and say, this is somebody that needs to have bariatric surgery? Yeah, they may not meet strict criteria or have the obvious comorbidities, but what about the person who's at 33 or 34? Using your rationale, maybe we should be lowering the BMI. Yes. Well, there are pros and cons to that. Of course, the pros are that we've uh, we've uh, learned that bariatric surgery is uh, very beneficial. And as, uh, as BMIs get lower, it's actually safer and the outcomes are better. And as I mentioned, it has a prophylactic or a preventive effect. On the other hand, you know, we have to be reasonable stewards of, uh, of financial and uh, resources that we have. And if we were to reduce the BMI from 30, 35 to 30, for example, you would overnight increase the eligibility of patients by millions of people, um, by almost 20 million additional eligible patients. So you're right, there has to be some kind of uh, a selection process taking place here. Um, so, for example, the, those patients whose BMIs are below 35, we, we tend to favor operating on the ones who have diabetes or pre-diabetes because that's been proven in, in many uh, areas and there are a lot of publications that show the absolute beneficial effect of operating on, on patients whose BMI is less than 35 and have diabetes. Well, I we guess tend we to be a little more selective. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Mitar. But I think we can finally say that the myth number one, bariatric surgery is very common, is busted. 
The next myth I wanted to talk about with you uh, is bariatric surgery is dangerous. Well, I think the best way to start right. this is, you know, first talk about the the significant complications and the burden of obesity. We, we mentioned this a little bit, but can you just kind of run through the most common types of uh, 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 comorbidities associated with obesity? Sure. So uh, obesity itself uh, tends to increase the risk of early death, such that the early, uh, you know, patients who reach a BMI of 40 are already at three or four fold uh, uh, increase of uh, de- early death by 10, 15 years. And and this is due to the uh, uh, all the all the medical comorbidities that become associated as part of the metabolic syndrome. Uh, when I was a resident, I was taught that uh, obesity, uh, you know, affects every organ in the body. It starts in the head, ends in the toes, and affects everything in between. And um, and, and and of course. Uh, these, by definition, will increase the risk status of patients. Now, I'll tell you, uh, bariatric surgery has had a bit of a checkered history. Um, 10, 20, 30 years ago, there were uh, probably significant numbers of complications that would happen. Um, but due to many factors, uh, uh, the uh, safety of bariatric surgery has markedly improved mostly as a result of approaching these patients in a comprehensive, multidisciplinary way and in, um, in standardizing uh, protocols and in having providers, surgeons and uh, other providers who are dedicated to the field rather than occasionally dabbling in bariatric surgery. And I, I remember specifically from your talk, you, you mentioned a lot about comparing bariatric surgery to other common general surgery procedures and the morbidity and mortality associated with both sets. Can you, what is the main differences between the two? Uh, sure. So you mean between bariatric surgery and other operations? Yeah. How do they compare in morbidity and mortality? Yeah. So, uh, so for example, the mortality rate in bariatric surgery has improved so much over the last few years that, that it's now equivalent to leprosolysystectomy. Um, almost equivalent to natural childbirth. It's become that safe. We've been able to reduce the mortality in, even in elderly people from 4% to less than 1%. And, uh, and remember that uh, these are patients who, by definition, are high risk. These are patients who've had comorbidities affecting their cardiovascular system, their uh, central nervous system, their uh, respiratory system, their endocrine system for many, many years, and so are by definition uh, sicker and higher risk patients, and yet uh, we're able to uh, obtain uh, very satisfactory results. I feel like this this myth that bariatric surgery is dangerous is, isn't just a problem for you know patients. It's also other providers. I think that uh, we're seeing that uh, sometimes the referral you know referrals from primary care um, are not what they should be because uh, other providers kind of have this idea that uh, bariatric surgery is dangerous because of course us in the medical field we always see the worst of it. We always see the ones that don't do well, the people that do great. Don't often don't end up in the ER or going to their primary care doctor for very frequently. How do we address that uh, uh, that problem? Sure. 
as I as I will often tell my referring physicians, the the ones who might be skeptic, or patients uh, and their families when they come and and meet with me and and uh, we conduct an interview, if if the outcomes weren't as satisfactory as they are, if mortality rates weren't at at zero point one percent or less, uh, I wouldn't be doing this. I'd be doing a totally different job. I think the reason of, um, referring physicians such as primary care providers are reluctant to send us patients is because there's still a lot of uh, naivety or unawareness of how safe bariatric surgery has become. There's also the other matter is that um, um, referring surgeons are probably a little uncomfortable about opening that subject and will not really talk about it unless prompted by the patients themselves. And finally, I think referring physicians, uh, again, dating back to the early days, are always worried or concerned that they might be burdened with having to take care of the occasional complicated patients, meaning that patient who might have nutritional deficiencies or some kind of complication uh, from surgery, and they're concerned that the surgeon might, uh, uh, might distance himself from the patient and that the referring physician might have, to, might have to take up the care of the patient, which, of course, should never happen. So we try to work hard at, at reassuring referring physicians that, you know, bring us your patients, we'll take care of them, we'll take care of any complications should they happen, while at the same time we're not going to, we're not going to disturb or interfere with the sacred bond that you have with the patient. We're not going to change medications or treatments in any way. We might just make recommendations and let you continue to be the, the driver of this relationship with your patient. So two quick questions about this idea of bariatric surgery being dangerous. In other areas of surgery, there's this concept of prehabilitation to try to get the patient in tune for their surgery. Do you think that bariatric surgery should, one, be a part of that for the morbidly obese for elective surgery? For example, in my world, in ulcerative colitis for high BMI patients that might have to go a colectomy, should, in addition to trying to control their sugar, should we be sending them to a bariatric surgeon for maybe some bariatric surgery for the morbidly obese ahead of time? And then second of all, is there a role to have patients, are you guys trying to have them do weight loss on their own anymore in the severe morbidly obese to try some medical aspect or do you just go right to surgery? Absolutely. Uh, you, you, you hit two very important matters. As we, uh, as we look back to try and understand how it is that our uh, outcomes have improved so much, there are obviously, it's a multifactorial uh, uh, situation. Uh, laparoscopy had it had a lot to do with it. The understanding of the physiology of the bariatric of the obese patient had a lot to do with it. Also, the multidisciplinary approach had a, has a lot to do with it, and that is probably one of the most important parts. Is that when patients come to us, we rarely, almost never, rush to surgery. Don't expect the patient to have surgery within the next week or two. There's always a time that that ranges between maybe three to four months at least, sometimes longer, of the prehabilitation that you're talking about. And that includes 
basically uh, evaluation of every major component of the patient and then optimization. So we check, for example, their A1C and make sure that that it is within reasonable levels. We check their blood pressure. We check their sleep apnea. We make sure they're on CPAP and they're on adequate antihypertensives. We continue to optimize the patient and prepare them both physically and mentally. They also see psychologists with the aim of, uh, of counseling the patients on how to adequately cope with stress because that can be a very important factor both in the uh, pathogenesis or etiology of obesity or in its maintenance. And, uh, and, and we ask them to lose a little bit of weight, not necessarily as a barrier or a challenge, but as an introduction or a preparation for life after surgery. Uh, with regards to a the actual term of prehab, meaning uh, performing some uh, kind of physical therapy before surgery, that is a new concept that has been growing uh, a lot recently, meaning that every patient can, even those who are very limited physically, can do something. And we tell patients, Standing is better than sitting. Walking is better than standing. And so what we're beginning to do is have every patient assessed by a physical therapist and provided with some kind of curriculum or schedule that will uh, uh, of graduated activity so that uh, by the time they get surgery, they're, they're more active than when they started. And, of course, they're going to apply this uh, after surgery as well. And it's been shown that this markedly improves outcomes. I think going along with that, too, is the idea of multidisciplinary teams in, uh, in all forms of medicine. Uh, we see this everywhere, but I, I definitely see it becoming more and more popular in bariatric surgery. Can you talk along, along those lines of what are the main drivers in, uh, in bariatric surgery that have improved outcomes, like the team approach, accreditation, et cetera? So uh, this approach is something that we learned from in the early days from uh, uh, fr from our colleagues in transplant surgery. Um, as as you know, when a patient is being evaluated for a liver transplant or a heart transplant, they get assessed by uh, a, a similar comprehensive multidisciplinary group of providers, and uh, we found that. Uh, this approach is very beneficial for our patients. A, 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 a true 360-degree assessment of the patient and their family and their social status, and, and then working on that to evaluate the patients helps a lot. And um, the other factor that has improved outcomes so much is, uh, is the accreditation process. Um, we uh, there were uh, there was a lot of variance uh, between the outcomes of centers across the country, and, and so we instituted the accreditation process to try and uh, adopt and translate best practices along all these programs. And the more successful programs were the ones that had this multidisciplinary approach, and that, that's why it became one of the standards for achieving accreditation by the American College of Surgeons that you have a certain complement of, um, uh, of different disciplines that uh, is patient-centric. That is great. Well, there, there's one myth out there that is uh, pretty pervasive, is that uh, bariatric surgery is not durable. Uh, what are the long-term outcomes currently, and what are the recent studies showing? 
So um, we tend to we tend to classify or categorize uh, follow up or long outcomes according to the number of years after surgery. And again, we borrowed this from our uh, colleagues in cancer. Um, they tend to uh, define long-term follow-up as uh, longer than five years, so five-year survival of cancer. And so in our uh, literature, uh, we tend to uh, also look at our numbers of five years, 10 years, and there are some papers that go beyond 10 years. And uh, by and large, the majority of patients uh, maintain their weight loss. There is about a 5 to 10% weight gain over the years, uh, but um, uh, we can confidently uh, counsel patients that uh, the weight loss can be sustained for at least 10 years in the range of about 50 to 60 excess weight loss, percent of excess weight loss. Meaning, meaning, if a patient is 100 pounds over ideal body weight, we can expect that patient to maintain 50, 60 uh, pounds, uh, uh, to lose 50, 60 pounds and maintain that for the years to come, and the same for 200 and 300 pounds. Also, importantly, above and beyond the weight loss is the resolution and improvement of comorbidities. Uh, more than 80% of patients with diabetes have a resolution or improvement of their diabetes. And we've learned that the earlier you treat diabetes, the better, meaning um, those patients who were diagnosed within five years of bariatric surgery can pretty much be expected to have 100% resolution. And by resolution, I mean normal A1C levels on no medication at all. And those patients whose who, who were diagnosed beyond 10 years, longer than 10 years before surgery, then about 50% of those patients will have resolution. But all of them will have improvement, meaning a reduction in their uh, medication. Does the, does, the choice, does the procedure matter? I mean, we hear a lot recently about, yeah. about about sleeves versus, you know, that sleeves might be as good for comorbidities as the gastric bypass, or then we sometimes we hear, you know, if you have diabetes, really you need the gastric bypass. Um, how are you breaking these down? So um, for, for the listeners who might not be as familiar, um, the gastric bypass is an operation that's been around for about maybe 50, 60 years. I think, I think it was... Um, it was uh, described by uh, Mason back in 1967 in the University of Iowa, and it's been it's been around since then. The only thing that's changed is the approach. As I mentioned, it's now laparoscopic. The sleeve gastrectomy, on the other hand, um, has been uh, around for about 15 years and has markedly uh, increased in popularity over the last five, six years, such that now it's the most common procedure performed not only in the United States, but worldwide. And the reason for the increase in popularity of the sleeve gastrectomy is that it's a, it's a simpler operation and it's better tolerated by patients. And frankly, it delivers results that are very comparable to the gastric bypass without the additional risks of the bypass, uh, meaning the uh, risk of ulcer formation or strictures at the anastomosis or some uh, or abdominal pain or intestinal obstruction from internal hernias and so on. 
the the um, the sleeve gastrectomy has gone through several evolutionary steps, if you will, until uh, and so in the early days it was associated with uh, with uh, a high frequency of complications or less favorable outcomes compared to the bypass. But as we've accrued experience and uh, improved our um, operative techniques, we've been able to now achieve results that are, like I said, comparable to the bypass in terms of weight loss and in terms of comorbidity resolution. And I'll direct the listeners to the current issue of JAMA. If you've come across it, it is entirely dedicated to uh, bariatric surgery and uh, the editorial um, ex- uh, describes how there are, I believe, three papers that report equivalence of uh, results between the sleeve gastrectomy and the gastric bypass. Moving on to uh, myth number four, uh, this is also something that is is becoming more popular in current bariatric surgery, but the, the myth is that bariatric surgery should not be offered to children and the elderly. Uh, the first question everybody's going to ask, obviously, is it safe to perform bariatric surgery on a child or an elderly individual? So the myth is that, you know, um, uh, bariatric surgery should not be uh, should not be offered to children because it might have a harmful effect on their growth or because these uh, individuals might not be um, physiologically or even mentally mature enough to um, to undertake the responsibilities that are uh, that are uh, part and parcel of bariatric surgery and uh, so uh, several papers have now been um, uh, published that show that bariatric surgery is actually beneficial and safe in uh, this population, particularly in adolescents. There's a there's a teen teen labs uh, project, uh, basically a longitudinal study of teenagers that followed these patients for longer than five years and showed the durability and the safety of these operations. Um, and typically, the convention has been to not uh, uh, refer uh, adolescents or children to bariatric surgery until they've completed their growth spurt, meaning that they would uh, be the age of 14 and above. And uh, we are gradually now moving into younger and younger populations, to particularly in those kids who are afflicted already by the metabolic syndrome or by severe sleep apnea, who have a miserable quality of life and in whom it just doesn't make any sense to wait until they're 16 or 17 and uh, renal disease and diabetes and um, uh, pulmonary hypertension has set in. And so on a case-by-case basis, we're, we're performing surgery on younger and younger people. Does the criteria change at all in the younger patient population? I mean, we, we throw these terms a lot in talks or in papers, and we say in select cases or a case-by-case basis, but what does that mean? Is it somebody have to have even a higher BMI? Is it a 45, a 40, or even higher? Or you know, a 12-year-old who's got morbidly obesity comes in and they have some hypertension and maybe some some pulmonary issues. What is to distinguish operating versus not? 
So, um, yeah, you're right. The BMI uh, threshold for these patients is a little higher. It's at 40 rather than 35. And uh, it's important that they be assessed by uh, providers who are uh, more specialized towards this population. So, for example, we ask that a, 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 a an adolescent social worker or an, or an adolescent medicine, uh, sorry, an adolescent psychologist see the patients and interview both the patients uh, and their parents um, and counsel the entire family uh, because they, they will be a very critical uh, and important part of, of, uh, of supporting uh, the patients. But other than that, uh, no, they're really the criteria uh, are the same as that for adults. And are you guys performing these at kind of uh, just, you know, any bariatric center? Or should these be reserved for children's hospitals with bariatric specialists at, that, at those uh, places? Right. So this has been an area of a lot intense discussion uh, because... Um, we, we know that, um, uh, as in other areas of surgery, uh, volume is an important factor in improving quality. And uh, pediatric surgeons, uh, there are pediatric surgeons who are busy uh, performing bariatric surgery in, uh, in the United States, uh, but not as many as the adult surgeons who will do children. And so... Um, this is an area of controversy because um, many uh, adult hospitals, if you will, are not equipped to take care of children and vice versa. Many pediatric hospitals, children's hospitals, are not equipped to take care of bariatric patients. And so um, currently what typically happens is that uh, these children and adolescents will have their surgery in an adult hospital by an adult bariatric surgeon in collaboration with uh, pediatric uh, physicians. Yeah, that's great. I actually just saw a paper come out comparing uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomies uh, in children done by general surgeons and by pediatric surgeons. And the general surgeons actually had equivalent and sometimes better outcomes than the pediatric surgeons, and they attributed it just to the higher volume of gallbladders that are done by adult general surgeons. Um, So it might be something similar there. All right. So this is obviously a hot flash uh, topic that the Pete surgeons might uh, dispute. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they'll have their opinions about that. Uh And on the other extreme, how old is too old? Great question. So uh, there are some uh, bariatric centers that do uh, place a um, a, uh, an age uh, limit on patients, and uh, frankly, I've never done that. Um, I, uh, I think uh, age is, uh, has some relevance, but it really doesn't tell the full story of what the patient's biologic and physiologic status is. Uh, also, remember the mental status. So um, I'll take all comers, and as I said, we will evaluate and optimize them. And if we find at the end of the day that they are acceptable risk, surgical risks, we'll proceed. And if not, we'll either optimize them or perhaps counsel them on uh, an alternative form of therapy. And I've operated on my oldest patient was 82 years old, and uh, he did great. I remember him writing me a letter uh, a week after surgery 
thanking me and, and saying that he'd had his first bowel movement and <laughs> life was good, he said. <laughs> on the other hand, I've operated on 55-year-old uh, um, women and just, uh, just scratched my head, you know, because they just, um, uh, I realized that maybe they weren't quite prepared. And so age itself is not necessarily the, uh, an important factor, but rather what their physiological status is. Right. Well, moving into the last myth that we want to talk to you about is the myth goes, bariatric surgery should be only be offered as a last resort to patients with diabetes. Well, we all know this is obviously not true, but um, can you first go on to discuss what are the main surgical effects on diabetes and is what are the long-term resolution uh, and what are the benefits of bariatric surgery on diabetes? So the effect of bariatric surgery on diabetes, I have to tell you, is probably our most celebrated accomplishment. It's the one that was discovered very early on, uh, back in the um, back in the gastric ulcer uh, surgery uh, era, and and then it was populated by. Uh, popularized, sorry, by Dr. Uh, Walter Pores, who was one of the pioneers in bariatric surgery, who uh, recognized that the majority of his patients were not only losing weight, but where their diabetes status was improving, was reversing or completely vanishing. And he went back and, 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 and analyzed all his patient population in North Carolina, and uh, he was in a rural area there, and he was able to account for more than 90% of his patients after 10 years. And he reported a, a dramatic improvement in their diabetes. And this has been studied uh, over the years. Uh, almost every lab in the country, I would imagine, is working on this. Um, and it used to be uh, the thinking was that weight loss alone was causing the correction in diabetes. But we've learned now that patients' uh, diabetic status improves from day one. Many of them leave the hospital without the need for any insulin or any other medications. And it's become clear now that it's not weight loss that's causing the correction in diabetes, but rather the correction on the, on the underlying metabolic dysfunction that was, um, that was playing a role. And we've discovered now uh, that a certain hormone called a glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, plays a central role in homeostasis of glucose metabolism. And in fact, uh, as you may be aware, some uh, manufacturing companies have, uh, have taken advantage of this, some pharmaceutical companies, and, and have mar marketed this as liraglutide or, or succina, I believe it's called. And this is a nice example of how uh, surgery, you know, progress was made from the operating room to the labs uh, to the patients rather than the other way around. So um, we think GLP-1 has a large play, a role to play. Uh, there are probably other hormones as well. In addition, the maintenance is probably from the weight loss as well. Yeah, that is super interesting. You know, who knows what we'll be curing uh, these medical diseases in the future with surgery. Who knows what will eventually come up. But uh, moving on, so I, the one part of your, your talk that I, I, I hung on to was 
the discussion on these newer procedures. We keep hearing about the the newest and best type of surgery or uh, option or procedure that can help cure uh, or uh, extend weight loss and uh, maybe help in the and get into the world of bariatric surgery. So I, I kind of want to run through a few different of these procedures and hear your thoughts on each of them. And uh, for our listeners out there, we'll, we'll try to post some pictures out on our in our notes that, or at least links to pictures so people can have an idea what each of these things look like. Uh, so starting off, this is something that is becoming a little more mainstream now and probably the most popular of all of them, uh, intragastric balloons. Uh, Dr. Matar, what are your thoughts on these? So intragastric balloons, uh, for those who might not be familiar, are uh, balloons um, that are about the size of a honeydew melon or a cantaloupe that are endoscopically placed in the stomachs of the patients. Or there are the newer generations now that can be swallowed and and then inflated uh, either with nitrogen or spontaneously inflate. And the balloons are, are placed in the stomach and remain for about six months. They're, they're meant to be there as a temporary modality. And then after six months, they're either removed endoscopically or the valve that they have uh, biodegrades. The patients then receive an additional six months of counseling. So that by the time, so the program is about one year in duration. So that by the time the the year is over, the patients will have achieved weight loss and also counseling on how to maintain the the weight loss. The FDA has approved several of these balloons, at least uh, three of them, and um, it's approved them for the BMI range of 30 to 40. And uh, so they're not meant for patients whose BMI is less than that or above 40. Um, now, many insurance payers uh, don't cover this, and so it's usually on a cash uh, pay basis. Um, of course, you know, we often get asked what's the point of uh, providing balloons to patients, and uh, we like to think of of a bariatrics or rather uh, um, weight loss uh, treatment as a continuum of care that involves multiple disciplines and multiple modalities that range from lifestyle intervention to behavior therapy, to diets, to pharmaceutical uh, medications, uh, weight loss medications, to things like this, balloons and other endoscopic procedures and then finally, also different degrees of surgery. It's all a continuum of care that uh, patients can have then this portfolio of options that they can choose from uh, in, in collaboration, of course, with, with the providers and reach uh, a shared decision on what's best for them. Okay, and then how about, uh, as you're just talking about all these different options, how about vagal nerve blocking for these patients? It seems like something uh, right. that is placed surgically and then they wear on the outside of their body. So, um, the you know, this uh, vagal nerve uh, technology, blocking technology, uh, came from the pacemaker technology, uh, you know, that, that was implemented for patients who had a gastroparesis. And um, it was noted that a lot of these patients, um, uh, that, that you could manipulate the peristalsis in the stomach and 
um, and, and, and many of them were reporting a, a, a suppression of their, of their appetites. And so um, uh, this technology was then developed wherein the surgeon goes in and places electrodes uh, around each vagal trunk. And then the electrodes are connected to a generator or a modulator that is situated uh, just uh, outside uh, in, in, the, in the left flank of the abdomen in the uh, just extra peritoneal layer. And the patient is able to uh, regulate or modulate the charges, the electric impulses that stimulate the vagus nerve. And it's done in pulses, and it's done for several hours in a day. It's not continuous. Uh, and uh, the idea being that this would uh, suppress appetite in the patients. Oh, wow. It's very interesting. I, I get to hear of that one. Um, and one I have heard of, and I know the gastroenterologists are excited about, is uh, endoscopic surgery, uh, such as the endoscopic uh, sleeve gastroplasty. Uh, wh- where do you see this going? Right. So, as you know, uh, you know, ever since the uh, adoption of laparoscopic principles, we tend to be surgeons who are always looking for uh, um, being as uh, minimally invasive as possible. And endoscopic surgery uh, is basically an outgrowth from the notes uh, uh, technology that had developed uh, a few years ago. And the idea being was, uh, how can we help the patient with incisionless surgery? So if you imagine in your mind the concept of the sleeve gastrectomy, uh, essentially being that you go in and you longitudinally staple uh, the stomach and divide it into two portions uh, laparoscopically. Um, the concept was that let's do the same endoscopically, but not necessarily resect the stomach, but plicate it from inside, suture it uh, in uh, in multiple layers so that the end result appears tubular. So uh, the, the, uh, the, you still have a conduit, uh, a, a narrow conduit of food uh, for, for the food to travel through the gastric tube. Um, so this is still investigational. Uh, there, there, are, there are three or four main uh, centers that uh, have evolved this and developed it and, and are popularizing it, essentially in uh, the Mayo Clinic and in Boston at Harvard. And they've had decent results, up to 30% weight loss. Um, but the jury is still out on how this can be adopted in a, in a wide range. It, it is labor-intensive, and um, and as surgeons, uh, we are a little concerned about uh, should we operate on these patients, what their stomachs are going to look like, because the sutures are uh, made with uh, non-absorbable protein mm-hmm. uh, inside. So there are there, there's still some. Uh, some hesitation or some reluctance uh, um, uh, with this modality, but it's certainly a promising one. Yeah, as we go down this list, these are getting further and further from way things I've, I've, I've actually heard about. But the next one that I uh, you've discussed before is aspiration therapy, uh, which is essentially a, what I, right. a modified peg tube. Uh, and I know it's created by the Segway inventor. Is that, is that right? That is correct. And... Um, 
I think he, he passed now, but uh, this was, I think, one of his last inventions. And the concept being here is we're all familiar with the peg tube. Uh, and this is a particular uh, device that's similar to that, meaning that it is endoscopically placed into the patient's stomach um, and the exterior of it is attached to a, a, specific, a special pump that uh, then drains the stomach and, uh, and the patient is able to evacuate um, um, the liquid contents of the stomach. And it's been calculated that by using this method, the patients are able to uh, to evacuate about 30% of their caloric intake. The, um, of course, uh, there's a lot of criticism uh, that surrounds this um, because uh, there have been uh, claims of, you know, this is just... Uh, Another, uh, you're, you're encouraging eating disorders or uh, it's another form of uh, um, indulging patients. But what its proponents point out uh, is that in order for the system to work, the, the, the food that is consumed has to be uh, uh, done in a very slow, methodical and a careful way uh, that patients cannot uh, have to that patients have to choose their food carefully and have to chew it carefully and swallow in a certain way so that it'll work or else they'll lose all the benefits of it so it's not the device itself that causes the weight loss but their change in habits in eating patterns that uh, result from it in other words it's it's a behavior inducing device rather than just a, uh, uh, an evacuation kind of device, if you see what I mean. Okay, and the next, the, this next one I'm sure a lot of people out there have not heard about. Uh, so this is duodenal mucosal resurfacing. What is, what is that, and does it work? Right, so the duodenal mucosal resurfacing uh, is not necessarily involved with weight loss, but rather with, uh, with uh, treatment of diabetes. So we've always, as I told you, there's been a lot of research going into how it is that just by bypassing the duodenum can patients' uh, diabetes improve so significantly. And the theory is that there is an as yet unidentified agent uh, in the duodenum or in the duodenal area that is driving diabetes. And it's probably arise, uh, related to absorption of nutrients in this area. And so what these uh, uh, developers uh, did was they, uh, they figured out a way of, uh, of ablating the duodenal mucosa with heat. And so endoscopically, they passed this long balloon to cover the surface, the, the, the endothelium of the uh, uh, of the duodenum and apply heat to it, and in that way, uh, the mucosa. And behold, they found that patients' diabetes markedly improved, and they found that it was a dose response curve, meaning that the longer the length of mucosa that was devitalized, the better the A1C results were. Of course, this is still investigational. Uh, it's only one company that's doing this, 
but it's certainly um, uh, you know hyped up a lot of interest in this area. Um, there's there's uh, there's concern that with all these devitalized mucosa you get to deal strictures, but the the developers report only uh, rare uh, occurrences of that, and they said that they were able to just dilate the duodenum uh, with a balloon dilator and uh, and uh, and solve that problem. Hmm. Well, the the last uh, the procedure I want to talk to you about is the uh, magnetic uh, jejunal ilia anastomosis. Can you explain that one to us and kind of the premise behind it? Sure. This uh, again, our our friends in Harvard, Chris Thompson, is a is a is a very innovative gastroenterologist, and he uh, described this um, um, technique wherein an endoscope is advanced from above, and a colonoscope is advanced from below under fluoroscopy. And uh, they, um, they, they, they're advanced until the two ends uh, are in close proximity, uh, one being in the jejunum uh, say, and the other being in the, uh, uh, either the uh, proximal colon or in the ilium. And, um, and then uh, magnets are deployed, very powerful magnets are deployed from both endoscopes. And they attract and bond with each other. And uh, over time, they cause necrosis of the intervening uh, bowel walls and end up uh, creating a fistula uh, or an anastomosis between the jejunum and the ilium. And um, this, I don't think, received any, was able to receive any IRB approvals here in the United States. But they did uh, conduct a study in uh, in the Czech Republic, uh, and uh, they reported uh, almost 30% excess weight loss with this modality. So, uh, again, uh, people being very innovative and imaginative. Well, it is quite exciting, all the new uh, methods that we are coming up with to treat this uh, growing problem. So uh, we're excited to hear what the future has to hold. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I want to be uh, a uh, one of the primary people on that last one, though, just uh, hearing about it. Uh, Which one, the aspiration or the magnet? Let's just say any of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to dive into our final five now. These are five questions we ask you to get to know you a little bit better. Uh, when you're performing these bariatric okay. surgeries, number one, when you're performing these bariatric surgeries, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if so, what type of music? Great question. I do actually. I uh, I do listen to. Uh, I have a very eclectic. I'm told a very eclectic uh, uh, range of music. I listen to everything. I listen to. Uh, it's a very diverse my uh, playlist that includes uh, older music, 80s, 90s, and new music, country music, rock, and even Latin music. I find the Latin music is is good for keeping up the tempo in the operating room. Okay, number two. Uh, so do you have any hobbies, talents, or interests uh, outside of the operating room that uh, you can share with us? Yeah, when I find free time, which is becoming uh, more and more scarce, I, I, I do like to... Um, um, 
especially here in Seattle, I, I love to take long walks uh, in the city. I, um, I'm still uh, uh, exploring the museums and uh, the libraries here. Um, and I just love to read and get to find people uh, and meet people. I, I, I'm not really a very outdoorsy kind of person, which for someone living in the Northwest is unusual. Uh, I can't ski, and um, I just wish I had more time for hiking. But those are my uh, in my plans. <laughs> well, is there a favorite trip or vacation that you've t- taken recently? Um, yeah, I um, we just uh, returned from a. Uh, uh, well, it's been a couple of years now. We were in a one of those. Um, what are they called? Agri agri tourism uh, trips in um, in in Spain in, in Mallorca. It was a uh, uh, it was an extended. We were all the extended family uh, rented uh, the entire estate, and it included the uh, the owners who were also the cooks and took care of the place. And basically, they just uh, spoiled us rotten for for about a week. And uh, it was a nice, relaxing way to spend time with the family away from tourists and uh, away from, you know, uh, commercial entities. It was in a farm out in the middle of the country, and we had a good time. Number four, if you were not doing medicine, what would you be doing? I ask myself that every day. Because, you know, I'm beginning to, you know, find people around me who are starting to talk about retiring and how they're going to um, do some of their uh, activities like uh, um, working on their hobbies. And frankly, uh, if I were not doing medicine, I would probably be, I like to write, I'd probably be writing some kind of novel maybe. But... um, yeah, nothing too exciting. Okay. I, I, I hope I never have to make that decision. Uh, number five, or final question. If you could go back in time and see yourself on the first day of internship, what advice would you give to yourself? Uh-huh. Um, hmm. Be patient. Um, listen more than speak. Um, and... And you know, I remember when I'd wake up at four, like I'm sure all of us have. I'm sure you do too. Four o'clock in the morning to pre-round, and I'm like, uh, "Am I really doing this? Why do I need to do this?" Now, of course, when you look back, you know that it's all worth it. And so, what I would tell my 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 former, my younger, my younger version would be to just be patient; that it will pay off in the end. And I'd reassure myself that uh, we are in the most rewarding profession that could be imagined. Well, we can't thank you enough for taking the time out to educate us on the updates in bariatric surgery and for joining us on Behind the Knife and from all of our listeners. Uh, we learned a lot, and thank you, and we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Well, thank you so much, and I'm really very impressed with the service that you're providing to the listeners. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, great, it's a, it's a great resource for them, and uh, 
Um, I've been honored. It's been an honor to be on this program. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day.